Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Bob Chapman here with me from St. Louis in the U.S. Uh, welcome to my podcast, Bob. It's a pleasure to be on with you, and I look forward to our conversation. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm, I'm really happy that our paths have uh, crossed, thanks to two friends we have in common, uh, Karen Volo and uh, Simon Sinek. Bob Chapman is chairman and CEO of Barry Way Miller, a global $3 billion capital equipment business with more than 12,000 team members. Uh, and he was recently named the number three CEO in the world in an Inc. magazine article. And Bob is very intentional about using his platform as a business leader to build a better world. Uh, so, Bob, I, I just recently listened, actually, to your Simon Sinek's um, podcast with you. And uh, one of the questions was, what do you do? And you said, we build uh, great people who build extraordinary things. And I found that so, like, spot on. And yet, it's a, it's a very unusual reply. You know, I was interviewed by Washington University organizational development professors several years ago. And for an hour and a half, because they heard about our culture. And so we, we talked for about an hour and a half. And, at the end, and all of a sudden, the professor says, you know, Mr. Chapman, you're the first CEO we've ever interviewed that never has mentioned your product. And I said, we've been talking about our product for the last hour and a half. It's our people. I won't go to my grave proud of the machinery we built. I will go to my grave proud of the people who built that machinery. At our internal university, our uh, sign above the door says, we build great people, okay, who do extraordinary things. That is our goal. And we, we all need an economic model to do that. In our case, we build capital equipment. But our, is, that, is that our product? No, that is the output of our focus, which is people coming together, sharing their gifts. So that's, that's our, that was a unique uh, uh, experience for these organizational development professors. And it make me, helped me realize that our product is our people, not the, not the things we build, but the people we build in, in creating the economic model that we have. Fantastic. Uh, but you, you became senior executive of this private company when you were only 30. And this was an 80-year-old uh, business. You had 20 million in revenue, outdated technology, and a very weak financial position at the time. And despite all of this, you managed to put together this blend, you could say, of strategy and culture uh, and go through a lot of, I think, 100 or something successful acquisitions. So looking back, what guided you? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, I would say to you is a, a key ingredient for me. I, I would say to you, in, in all sincerity, I'm not very intelligent, but I have a great sense of common sense and I'm creative. So I would say to you, my journey has been marked by being able to see value where other people don't see it. A very unconventional approach to rebuilding a business that was 80 years old. And again, the first half of my career was uh, when my dad died when I was 30 and I took over this uh, $20 million business. My, my initial goal was to, to kind of carry on the legacy of the business, building brewery equipment for the uh, the major breweries of the world to pasteurize beer and return wash returnable bottle washers. But I realized, you know, in a, in a relatively few years that that path did not create a future. Those product lines, that technology was not going to give our people and our stakeholders a future. So I felt that by studying other companies that what I needed to do, since I was a financial background, what I needed to do was acquire other companies, other technologies that would give our people a better future. That was my goal. The only problem I had was I was dead broke and I had no money and I had no experience. Uh, the beauty is what I had was uh, a positive attitude and a can-do attitude. So I went out and began buying companies that I thought had products and technology that would give us a future. And the beauty is that that, that is where my gift lies, in seeing value where other people don't and, and designing a business model that gives people a future. I always say it's the responsibility of every executive to know where you're going, 
why you want to go there, and when you get there, why will you have taken your people to a better place? You know, I, I believe that every senior executive's responsibility is have a grounded sense of hope for the future for your people, okay? That they can believe in you, just like we'd like to believe in uh, the president of the United States or the you know, prime minister of Italy. You know, we, we want to believe in our leaders that they have our int- good uh, outcome in, in their hopes, okay? And so I would say to you, that is one of the things I've always, this incredible can do, we can make it. I had unbelievable challenges to transform this company, but I never gave up hope and I never gave up trying to find that path. And, and so I, I, that, that path transformed us from a $20 million historic old business into a $3 billion vibrant business that nobody questions our future. That we, when economic challenges hit like 08, 09 and COVID, we don't have to take it out on our people because we are sound. We have a diverse business model. So I always say you need a good business model. And you need a good culture. And so I just want to share, I was teaching our uh, case study that Harvard wrote at, uh, at Harvard to 180 global executives. And at the end of them studying our case, the professor asked me, to, the students uh, in front of me, he said, is, Mr., is Barry Waymler successful because of its strategy or f- because of its culture? And 70, after this vibrant discussion, 75% of the people voted it was because of our culture. And my answer was, that's not right. It is, our, it is our strategy is our success. Our business model is the foundation. It's like Ferrari building the most perfect mechanical engine you could imagine. But unless you put the right fuel in it, that engine will never perform in its potential. So the engine is, 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 is the business model and, and the culture is the premium fuel that allows that business model to realize its potential. So that, that, that journey uh, has allowed us to transform that 100-year-old company. Mm. That's a very well described, really. And, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, there's tons of research, and you're mentioning Harvard, uh, for example, business school and so on, tons of research that I've discussed with the professors over there as well that really show that if you delegate authority in a company where there is trust, accountability, care, and all of that, performance increases enormously. And we know also that it leads to happier people with better lives and innovation, productivity, and so on. So why don't more firms do this? (laughs) Well, because we don't have leaders with the skills and the courage to care for their people. Okay, I asked uh, Harvard one time, the people at Harvard I work with, what was the purpose of education? They said the purpose of education was to have an informed citizenry so we could have a democracy. That's how we began. But then the Industrial Revolution came along and what did Henry Ford and others need in mass production? We needed skills, engineers, salespeople, scientists, you know, accountants, lawyers, Okay, the industrial society needed skills. So our universities became skills factories to feed what the market wanted, which was skills. Okay, it did not, they did not say we want leaders who know how to care. We want people with technical skills. So our education system migrated to skills from elementary through secondary through college through doctoral programs, skills. And the more skills you have, the better job you could get because what did you want? You wanted to get a good education, to get a good job, which means make good money. It was all about making economic value, not human value. And unfortunately, uh, in those early days, I mean, in America, when were unions formed? In the Industrial Revolution to protect workers from the greed of management because This industrial revolution was creating a huge amount of economic wealth. But the assumption was if we created jobs that paid well and had good benefits, that people would be happy because they'd have money for education and filling the needs of their family. But the problem was that, unfortunately, money is not happiness, okay? Uh, and, and, And so we never, from the very beginning of the industrial revolution, we created managers What is, what is a manager? Somebody who manipulates others for his success. We were not creating leaders who had the ability and the skills to care for the people they would have the privilege of leading. 
So again, we've been on this journey 15 years. I've talked all over the world with Harvard and Stan- Stanford and McKinsey of some incredibly sharp people, all with good intentions. Okay, and, and they all are struggling. What's wrong? We've had economic prosperity. We have peace in the world, but we don't have happiness. We have one of the highest levels of anxiety I have ever seen in, this, in the world right now. Why? Because people don't feel cared for. They feel used for somebody else's purpose. That's what we teach them because we teach success is money, power, and position, and it really doesn't matter how you get it, okay? Because when you get it, you can write big checks to charity and the community will celebrate you. Doesn't matter how you got your money as long as you write big checks to charity. So what we, our failure and the issue we face is education needs to look in the mirror and say, are we creating leaders who can leave our institutions in the four, six years, whatever you spend in that institution, go out and become leaders in every field you go in with a combination of technical skills and and human skills. So we had to create our own university because we realized we can't create leaders uh, by sending them back to universities. We have to do that ourselves. So we started teaching empathetic listening. The most powerful thing we have learned in this journey is the most fundamental skill to be a leader, to be a parent, to be a friend, uh, to be a husband, a wife, is empathetic listening. Unless you can listen to people with empathy and understand them. You can't have the relationships you want and need in your life. Second thing we taught is, is recognition and celebration. How do you let people know they matter? Okay, right. This is very key in raising kids. If you don't compliment them five times more than you suggest things they could do better, it's hard for them to hear the things they could do better. So we focus on how do you let the people know you have the privilege of leading that you care about them towards the organizational goal. So that is a skill. And we teach culture of service, which is seizing the opportunity to serve others. So we teach people the skills of leadership because our universities give them technical skills, technical degrees, but they don't give them human skills. And, and, and people need desperately to become leaders. How do you care for people? It's, it's not the fact that you have good paying jobs and a good company uh, because people don't feel valued. They feel used around the world. This is not an American issue. It is a global issue. We find it in every country we go to. A good leader is also like the best kind of parent in a way. It's that, that kind of sense of hard love. Like you give love to them, but you also give them what they need and not what they want. Right. So that's this balancing. Well, act. They remember our leadership model. You know, so, and I have a normal education, you know, I have an undergraduate in accounting, an MBA from Michigan. I went to Pricewaterhouse. So I have a very traditional education. And then I went into a very challenged business and tried to apply what I'd learned in school, which is about reducing costs, improving cash flow, uh, diversifying the product line. So I took this technical skills I had and I was transforming our business. You know, I, I made my mistakes. I recovered from my mistakes. I learned and I did folk. But I, I didn't I, I didn't have the human skills. So my first 20 years was very, I was successful financially. I'm a nice guy and, you know, I had a decent culture. But it was three revelations that I experienced that changed me and woke, awoken me to what I consider to be leadership, which is what is management, the manipulation of others for your success? What is leadership, the stewardship of the lives entrusted to you? Looking at those people who you have the privilege of leading as somebody's precious child that's been placed in your care. Because I was never taught in my university, never heard, never read, that the way we treat people at work profoundly affects their health. Remember, the Mayo Clinic told us in America that the person you report to at work is more important to your health than your family doctor, okay? Uh, we, so we clearly understand that. And the second thing we heard is when we taught, this astounded me, when we taught people empathetic listening, recognition and celebration, culture of service, in our university, internal university, we had to create because we couldn't send people anywhere to learn this because our university don't teach it. 90% of the feedback of people after they completed these classes was, how it improved their marriage and their relationship with their kids. It never occurred to me that the way we treat people at work would affect the way they would go home and, and 
treat their family, their spouse, their kids, and behave in their community. Because right now, when we remember, 80, in America, these are American statistics, but we find them around in the world, 88% of all people feel they work for an organization that does not care about them. Three out of four people are disengaged in what they're doing. 65% of all people would give up a salary increase if they could fire their boss. 58% of all people would trust a stranger before they would trust their boss. That is the, that's the world we live in right now. That is why people have anxiety and depression. Because if you don't feel valued and feel used for 40 hours a week, how can you come home and be the, the best parent, the best spouse, the best community member when you've been used and abused for 40 hours a week? Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really um, amazing uh, waste uh, of of the whole situation. It's a negative kind of loop that we are all in. Um, but I'm thinking change does not come from like only fighting from what exists, but also by creating something that can replace it. And you you have that part of the puzzle here that you were told told us about about the skills to to teach these skills that we don't get through education. But if we assume that that um, we are here to, uh, you and I right now, we can sit here and say, okay, let's design the future we want. Let's imagine we could do that. So what, what, is, what is your idea of the future that you would like to see? Well, that's shaped over the last 15 years journeys and, you know, having acquired 120 companies and seeing 120 cultures and people and remember I'm not talking to you about a theory. I'm talking to you about what we're actually doing. And we didn't know we were doing anything special until Simon Sinek came in and said, I'm no longer a nutty idealist. I've just seen what I dream of. I dream of a world where you could walk down any street in Milan, in Milan or Florence or Paris or, or Washington, D.C. and tap anybody on the shoulder and say, do you like your job? And they say, no, I don't like my job. I love my job. That is Simon's dream. And that is what he saw when he came and visited our company. And I'd just like to add for your, your audience, uh, uh, there's a, a gentleman named Bill Urey who's very close to Simon was given several TED Talks. He, he negotiates world peace. He's been negotiating world peace out of Harvard for 30 years. An amazing, amazing gentleman we've met along this journey. Bill Urey came in because Simon said, you got to see this place. Why would a world peace negotiator go to a manufacturing plant in America? Because Simon said, you've got to see this. So Bill came, spent two days talking to our people, and he looked at me after two days and he said, Bob, I just saw the answer to world peace. And I said, how could you go to a manufacturing plant and see the answer to world peace? He said, I saw a place where people genuinely care for each other. So I would, I want to start this conversation by saying, I'm sharing with you an eclectic journey I've been on, not an intentional journey that's been shaped by revelations that have completely changed my view of what leadership should and, and can be. And, and, and so we've been out sharing this with major corporations in the world, American Airlines, uh, uh, 125,000 people. We talked to Shell Oil Company with uh, 75,000 people. And, you know, McKinsey we've talked to, Harvard people we've talked to, because now Harvard, our Harvard case study is studied by many people around the world are in culture. So I know what the world needs. To, you know, from my view, I will share with you, we're out treating cancer, the, trans, the cancer of not being cared for. We're treating, we're giving people, adults, the skills to do this, okay, through our Chapman and Co. Leadership Institute. So we're, we have an outreach program. We're out helping major people around the world treat their people with responsible care, okay? But that doesn't cure cancer. The cure for cancer is our education system. From the early years of when we entrust our kids to our education system, through whatever level of, that they go to, we need to create we need to educate the whole child, not just the brain in terms of technical skills and geography and science and math, uh, but with human skills. We need to teach them how to listen to each other and how to care for each other because we have a world where people don't know how to care for each other. They use each other for financial gain, okay, because that's what we're taught. That's what we think happiness is, is money. So what we need to do, the world I imagine, and that, that's why we're in conversation with some of the leading institutions, 
Universities need to pivot and embrace the whole child and say, in the four years, two years, whatever time we have you in our care, that we are going to give you the life skills you need, which are a combination of technical skills. You want to be an attorney. You want to be a marketing executive. You want to be a human resource director. We're going to give you the technical skills, but more important and equally important, we're going to give you the human skills to care for the people you will eventually be leading. That is that is the cure for this cancer of, of, of using people for financial gain. We've got to educate people. And until we do that, we're out treating cancer, but we're not curing cancer. The course of humanity has very much been like decided by you could say the definition of success. Okay. So, so if we think about it, if we change the course of humanity by changing the picture of success that people have in their mind and practice it, we could really change the trajectory of the whole journey, right? So we change the goal, you change the behavior. I'm going to tell you a story that I think captures that. There, I, I gave a speech someplace, and a very successful gentleman, extremely successful gentleman, heard me speak, and he flew out to Aspen to have dinner with me. And I said, what are you really proud of in your life? And he said, well, I'm known for my $140 million contribution to my alma mater. But what I'm really proud of is my minority student athletic scholarship program. I said, well, great. How many students a year do you help with your minority student athletic scholarship program? He said five or six each year. And I said, that's wonderful. How many people work for your company around the world? And he said, 100,000. I said, so you're telling me you're really proud of five or six young men or women that you can help get a good education through my uh, athletic scholarship but you don't care about your 100,000 people who you have for 40 hours a week. And this really fine gentleman looked at me and he said, I never thought about that. He never thought about the 100,000 people who walked into his companies around the world every day, shared their gifts to create his wealth so he could be celebrated as he helped some minority students. So we, we have in many places in the world, we celebrate those people who write checks to these noble charities and the good work that they do. And I say the greatest act of charity is not the checks we write to heal the brokenness we created. The greatest act of charity is caring for the people you have the privilege of leading. That is where charity begins, not with a check to some institution trying to heal the brokenness we've created, but to go at the source of the brokenness. Because, you know, we need all these charities to heal all the brokenness that nobody, you know, uh, knows what to do, you know, from, from cancer to all the other noble causes. But if we had a society where people feel cared for, because it's hard to care for others if you don't feel cared for yourself. So we, ha we have to have charities to help them because nobody else is going to help them, okay? So the greatest act of charity is not the checks we write. It is the way we treat people we have the privilege of leading because the way we treat them will affect the way they treat others and it, it will spread unbelievable. That's what happened. That is what Bill Urey, that is what Simon Sinek, that's what Raj Shizodio, that's what they all saw when they came to our company. They saw a place where people care about each other. Now, that's not what we started to try and do. We just wanted to send people home fulfilled. But when we focused on an education system that showed that, that we cared about people and wanted to go home fulfilled and they felt cared for, they started caring for others in the company. So a greatest act of charity is not the time you give or the checks you write to an organization. It is the way you treat people you have the privilege of leading in your home, in your community, in your job. Yeah, and, and, and another thing I think is really key, um, has always been, but even more so now, is, is trust. Uh, and I see trust like, um, like energy, you know, it doesn't like 
it doesn't just disappear, it goes elsewhere. And I think what has happened now is that the institutions are very, you know, everywhere severely weakened and along with the lower trust in governments uh, in general. Um, so now the businesses are more, I would say, important than ever as instruments for change, but also that people do think that business should step up and deal with so-called problems at the table that nobody else can resolve. And that's a huge transition. And I see it as a, as a, as a good transition in one way. At the same time, it's worrying that we have institutions that don't, don't function. I don't work on um, trust. I work on care. And trust is a result. Okay, trust is an outcome. So I don't do things. Now, we try to openly communicate. We try to what I want people to believe is that I care about them. Uh, not just our senior executives and not just our top salespeople. And I, you know, uh, I always remember the uh, expression, our customers are number one. Well, that's pitiful. What does that mean your people are? So I would say to you, um, you know, I think you saw at the uh, business roundtable in America, which is the America's top 200 companies, came out with a statement last about a year ago in the beginning of the political campaign, uh, talking about we need to shift our focus and embrace the responsibility to all stakeholders, not just the shareholders. And, and I know a number of these top people, and they're good people with good intentions. It's just not going to happen, okay? Because we have an investment community that drives, you know, the boards and uh, of these companies that say, I want wealth creation, as long as you're creating wealth, you can do what you want to do about be good to your people. But if you're not creating wealth, uh, we got an issue with you. And it's, 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 we got a, a society where, it's, where success is money, power, and position. And we have a media. You know, you talk about trust. One of the issues that we face in the world is we have a, a media that focuses on the fringes of the brokenness of the world. Okay? Wherever there's... If you, you can't trust anybody because the media is constantly focused on the brokenness of the world. I was actually getting on a plane in uh, Pisa years ago uh, and having the same conversation in the early days about uh, the media. And the lady worked for the Wall Street Journal and we're having a conversation. She finally said, Mr. Chapman, we are taught in journalism school that what bleeds reads. Okay. And, and I said, does that mean good news is not news? And she said, that's a good question. So when, when and, and in my lifetime, you know, when I was young, there was three major channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS, that news was, you know, one hour a week. Uh, and it wasn't all wrong. Now we are inundated with the brokenness of every part of this world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How can people trust anybody when the news will show you why everybody in position of power is either done something criminally or is accused of doing something because we are, because the media is constantly looking for a story that will sell and give them ratings, okay? They're in the business of making money. They're not in the business of creating good cultures. They're not even in the business of informing. They're in business of selling uh, extreme views. So they constantly focused on the brokenness in the world. So everywhere in the world, our media is not looking for the goodness in the world. It's looking for the brokenness. And so if, if we say in raising kids, if you don't compliment them five times more, then, then you talk about things they could do better. It'll be hard on them. What about the public? If our media is constantly giving us the brokenness, how can people feel good about any institution in the world? Definitely. And, and whenever I speak to my friends, uh, many of them are also journalists, they, they say, no, it's, that's not the case. I mean, we, we're not looking for bad news only. We're looking for good news, but we don't have the power sometimes to decide that that should be published. So, <laughs> so, well, okay. so that's, that's, their, that's their industry. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, you know, the media is in for ratings. Okay. And, and you know, uh, somebody got in the car with me the other day and they said, did you hear that? Sue Williams had COVID. And I said, I'm just curious. Why did you start our time together with the sensational? Did you hear? It's kind of like the news. Did you hear latest news? Trump had an affair or somebody killed somebody or somebody ran over somebody. I mean, seriously, it's sick. It is sick. And it is. And, and remember, 
when I was speaking at Brown University about uh, right now, about a year and a half ago, I went up to Harvard in advance and I said, what's on the minds of the university? I was going to speak to the university presidents from around the world. And I said, what's on the mind of university presidents? And a gentleman at Harvard I was talking to said, uh, what's on their mind is what's called an epidemic of anguish. I said, what do you mean? He said, the level of anxiety and depression of incoming college students is the highest we have ever seen and our universities don't have the resources to deal with this level of, of, uh, of mental illness, okay, anxiety and depression. And in America, prior to the pandemic, we had the lowest un- unemployment in 50 years, and we were the most peaceful time in our history. And yet we had the highest level of anxiety in adults and depression. Why? Why are pe- we had peace and prosperity? Isn't that what our governments are trying to create in all of our countries around the world? Peace and prosperity. So you can pursue your dreams, afford to have a home, a shelter, food, and, and, and recreation for your family. So we had it. And yet we had high depression. Why? Because people feel used, not valued. Okay. And success is money, power, and position, okay? And success is not living lives of meaning and purpose in service of others, okay? It is money, power, and position. So the issue, until the media grasps it, until our universities grasp their role of creating leaders who have the skills and the courage to care for people, we are going to self-destruct as a society for economic gain in the theory that peace and prosperity is what we are about, and it is not. It is about people realizing a sense of value for everybody that they have a privilege of working with. And what people see when they come into our companies, and that's what Ross Suzodia wrote, you know, my co-author who wrote the book Unconscious Capitalism, that's what he saw. He saw grown men and women come to tears trying to say what it means to feel valued. We had a Amy Cuddy who had like the number three TED talk in the world. Simon brought her in. She walked. She sat down with Simon after she spent a day talking and and walking around our plants, and she said, "This is I have never cried so much or hugged so many people as I have walking through your plants." They wanted to tell me their story of what it feels like to be cared for. They wanted to tell her the story. She said, "This is as close to utopia as I've ever seen." And and then this is a manufacturing plant in Wisconsin that makes capital equipment, okay? And so I would say to you, I'll go back to Simon's statement, if it exists, it must be possible, okay? I'll tell you one more story. Uh, We were looking at buying a company in France. My board expressed some concerns because the government of France is known as what with uh, workers' councils and unions are not very friendly towards business. So my board was concerned. I liked the people I met. I liked the opportunity. And I eventually convinced them to buy it. Uh, So I had an agreement to buy a company uh, on the coast of France from a a prominent French company. And in France, the workers' council has to agree to the sale of the company. So I flew over to uh, the village of Compere, the village in France, uh, to meet with the Workers' Council. Here I am, an American, uh, meeting with French people owned by, in a company owned by a prominent French company. And so I sat down to hear the, uh, the discussion from the Workers' Council. They said, Mr. Chapman, we went to Paris. We met with the Workers' Councils in Paris where you have a company. We studied your culture, and we want you to buy our company. And I, I was struck with pride that they wanted an American company to buy their French company. I was incredibly proud. And then immediately a gentleman named Felipe, who I didn't know before this meeting, he looked at me and he said, Mr. Chapman, can I say something? I said, sure. He said, Mr. Chapman, we've been waiting for you for 32 years. And they began crying. (laughs) Because governments can't protect the way you're treated. They can protect the economics, okay? But they can't give people the skills and the courage to care for you. So the biggest thing I want people to learn is leadership is not the manipulation of people for your success. Leadership is the stewardship of the lives and trusting 
to you. And to look at those people you have the privilege of leading as somebody's precious child that's been placed in your care, knowing that the way you treat those people you have the privilege of leading is going to affect their health and going to affect the way their marriage and their relationship with the children and the way they behave in the community. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking about people who might think, okay, well, this is a private company. It's a different story. It's easier then because you can do exactly what you think and you're not going to, you know, you will have, you can be long-term without, you know, immediately improving certain kind of KPIs or, or results. What would you say to people who might think that? Our share price has gone up compounded 15% a year for 25 years. So there's something working, okay? Remember, it's as the Harvard class said, it's not just our culture, it is our strategy. We have a robust business strategy. There's an expression uh, that I heard years ago that you need to get the right people on the bus. I think it came from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. You need to get the right people on the bus, okay? I say, no, that's not quite right. You need to build a safe bus, which is your business model, okay? And and then you need drivers who are your leaders who know where they're going and how to drive that bus safely. And then anybody that gets on the bus is going to be fine. Okay. So the key is for public company, there's really no difference. I mean, we have outside investors, you know, we have 500 shareholders. The only difference is, you know, there's a longer term view in our company than quarter to quarter view, even though our company has done very well. Um, you know, obviously, again, we've grown from 20 million to 3 billion uh, we're very proud that we have the uh, the Walton family, the uh, incredibly fine family, as one of our um, meaningful investors, as well as my family, and 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 a bunch of our shareholders, uh, stakeholders, um, key members of our team and board. So, what's the difference in public private? Nothing. Remember, if 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 eighty eight percent of all people feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them, that means public companies. And if three out of four are disengaged in what they're doing, people are not sharing their gifts with major companies. If you walked through a public company and saw a machine tool that was running at 50% of capacity, you'd say, look, you invested $100,000 in that machine tool and it's running 50% of capacity. You need to do something. Well, walk through these plants of public companies. They're not sharing their gifts fully because they're being used for financial gain. Uh, So we're working with prominent public companies uh, and we've seen meaningful, you know, we're working with a 75,000-person uh, food chain. And they've seen a reduction in, this turn, in their in store manager's turnover. Okay, we're working with a company, that make, a public company that makes recreational vehicle components. I think it's a $3 billion company. They've, they, their turnover in their plants, which is a very low-skill level plant where they're putting rivets and aluminum doors, they've seen their turnover go from 160% to 20%. And the stories they tell when they started caring for people have been dramatic. Well, if you want to monetize what it means to lose 100, 100% of your people in your plan every year and have to retrain them and retrain them all the time, and instead of having people that stay with you, is dramatic. So there's no question that people sharing their gifts with you fully, being committed and attracting good people is going to create a better public company. So there's no disharmony. And again, the, the, the business roundtable came out with a statement. We need to, we need to take into consideration all of our stakeholders, not just our shareholders. So they know they need to do it, but how to do it, they don't know because they weren't educated to care. They were educated to use people. So the issue is not public versus private is that these leaders have never been taught to do this. One time I asked our most senior board member, who had been a a chairman of a public company. He was uh, on the board of other public companies. I I said to Bob, I said, Bob, how many times in your history at a public company board did you ever talk about culture? And he thought a minute and he said, well, at one of our board meetings uh, at Chrysler, we talked about executive compensation. That's as close as he could remember to ever discussing culture at a public company board, okay? So the issue is really, it only makes sense that if your people are sharing their gift with you, if you want to attract the best people, 
You need a culture where people feel valued and people can express their gifts because they're committed to the vision of the company. It only makes sense. If you look at the data, data is people are miserable. People don't quit a, a, a job, they quit their boss. So, I mean, the data is overwhelming that everybody needs to embrace this, if not for the goodness of society, because we are basically killing people uh, and by manipulating them for our financial gain. And after all these years and the beautiful, important work you've done and so on, when you look back and so on, have you, what would what you define as like being really your, um, uh, your passion, if you like? Is, is it people or is it something else? You know, I'd have to say to you that, uh, and I don't remember where it came from, but I'd have to say I've always had a an intellectual, you know, when I would be shopping with my wife or my parents, I would watch people's behavior. And I was always intrigued by people's behavior. So I would say to you that it has been my intrigue with people and the uniqueness of every individual that is kind of the core of what has driven me. Uh, and nothing has been more meaningful than the feedback from people in our journey. I mean, what, what, again, can you imagine what it feels like to have a world, a renowned world peace negotiator come into your manufacturing plant and say he saw the answer to world peace? That is beyond my wildest imagination. Can you imagine what it feels like to have Harvard write a case study And people now around the world using this Harvard case study to begin to teach people how to care for the people they have the privilege of leading. We have a world where we use people. We have a world where people don't understand each other. And we have a world more and more divided every day, amplified by the media, which we, we amplify our differences rather than our common roots. And so I want your listeners to know the biggest thing we have learned when we began to teach people how to go from management to leadership, is that one of our team members said, we need to teach people empathetic listening. And I said, what, why, why would we need to teach adults to listen? And he said, Bob, trust me. And I said, okay, I don't understand though. So the first, it astounds me that in our university, this gentleman, David Vondermolen said, if we're gonna teach people to be leaders, we need to teach them how to listen. And I was amazed at that. And, and so they, they taught, they developed this three-day class, which we began teaching around the world. And I, I came across a lady in, um, in Minneapolis, and uh, she walked up to me and said, Mr. Chapman, I just took your listening class at Barry Winley University. And I said, oh, really? I said, what was it like? Because I had no idea. And she said, it changed my life. And I said, wait, we taught a three-day class at work that changed your life? She said, yes. She said, I now know how to raise my two-year-old daughter. That opened my mind and my heart, and I started flying around the country and listening to people who were taking these classes, and 90% of the feedback was their relationship with their wife, their parents, their friends, their kids, and it's about relationships. The world is about relationships, not about the manipulation of others for your success, but about relationships that have deep meaning between countries, between uh, ages. Right now, we have a lot of issues in America on inclusion and diversity. We don't teach inclusion and diversity because we teach people how to care for each other, which is a deeper, deeper relationship. So I would say to you that I would want people to understand that the issue we, we have between countries between government entities, between family members, community members, is we know how to talk and we know how to debate, but we don't know how to listen. And until the world learns the skills of empathetic listening so we can truly understand and appreciate the uniqueness of everybody and their views, we will, and when, as long as we have a media that is constantly amplifying these differences rather than building the bridges to our differences so we can understand and live together and understand the diversity of people, we are going to self-destruct as societies because we are using people for financial gains instead of caring for people for human gain. If you assume that you have really all doors open to you and all resources available, is there 
anything in particular, aside from all the things you already do, of course, that you would like to rush to change or innovate? Yes. Um, A, we need to elevate this message. And B, what I've learned is my major focus to cure this cancer is I got to work with education. And we are beginning, we're just beginning to get some level of interest to educate the whole child, to give them the skills to live peacefully in our society. I'll tell you a beautiful story. Because of you've heard of all the issues we've had in America, you know, recently that concerns us all. Bill Urey, this Harvard peace negotiator, called me, you know, maybe two months ago now, in the midst of all this anxiety and concern. And he said, Bob, I'm just concerned and I want to do something. So I'm calling people who I respect to just kind of talk about it. And we, and I said, well, you know, Bill, the problem was that we have this, we have a lot of this uh, anxiety and depression being expressed with violence and protests because, but the problem is nobody's listening. We don't know how to listen to each other and we'll never resolve this by protests and violence. We need, we'll solve it by listening. And so the next morning, Bill sends me an email from a, a phenomenal gentleman named Tom Friedman of the New York Times. And he wrote this article, which I think is profound. And he said, we don't have a poverty of, of, of money, of wealth in this world. We have a poverty of dignity. And when people don't feel valued, they feel a sense of humiliation. And when people feel that, you'll see anger and violence and he quoted Nelson Mandela from, uh, obviously, the issues we had in South Africa. What we have in this world is a poverty of dignity, which when people don't feel valued, they feel humiliated, they don't feel, and, and, and they don't feel good. And so when he went on to say that what we need is deep listening. He called it deep listening in this article, but we call it empathetic listening. Until the world has the skills to listen and understand each other, we won't solve it. So my hope is that message is a message that will sell because if, you know, Tom Friedman has got a big voice in this country through the New York times. And again, he called it the poverty of dignity and, and, and dignity is not money. Dignity is feeling valued, whether you're a receptionist or you're selling hot dogs or you're, you know, you work, you know, work in the assembly department Whatever your job is, you feel a sense of dignity, and, and money does not heal dignity. Only caring and, uh, and feeling valued will do that. That is the heart of the issues we face in this world. That is what we desperately need. We need to address the poverty of dignity, and we do that through listening and being stewards of the lives entrusted to us. So, Bob, my... my- Final question to you right now is, is what, what do you think the world needs most at this time? Even though, you know, I'm getting, our company has got 3,000 people in Europe. You know, we've, we've done probably 30 acquisitions in Europe. I find this, what I just said is, is the poverty of the world, not just of America. You know, Tom Friedman wrote in the New York Times, but I've seen this all the way. I saw it in France. I saw it in Italy. I saw it in Serbia. People... People need a sense of hope. Okay, we're bringing children into this world with the best of intentions. And we as adults have got to get our focus on humanity, on dignity, on creating a world so that these children we bring into this world have a chance to be who they're intended to be and appreciated for whatever that is. In a society where we don't judge people by money, power, and position, we, we judge people by them living fully the gifts that they've been blessed with. That is the world I imagine. That is the a world issue. And so, again, I've, you know, I've talked to Russian business leaders. We deal in Russia, India, Serbia. This is a universal issue. People simply want to know that who they are and what they do matters. And we show them this it profoundly changed their sense of purpose and meaning. And then they give that gift to others, the gift they've been given. This is a gift that gives and gives and gives. Because when people feel valued, they behave in dramatically different ways. We don't need to protest. So the key is our education system, which will impact uh, our political system, 
which will impact our business system, which will impact our healthcare system. We have this issue in every part of our society, including our educational institutions, where I've spoken to people who feel just as abused and uh, as they do, because we are not creating leaders who have the skills and the courage to care. We are, we're creating leaders who, who talk about financial results. Even medical universities are run by administrators who work on funding to make sure the funding. Well, what, what's what's the CEO does? Funding. You know, we need financial success. We need equity success. And so, you know, it's all about money. It's all about money in every part of our society. And we're, our universities are not creating leaders. We're creating skills. I, you know, I, I was interviewing a, a, a dean of a, a graduate business school. And I said, Dean, what is your vision for the, in this case, two years, you have these young men and women in your care? And he said, well, we don't have vision. We have beliefs that are on the wall. I said, well, if you don't have a vision, how do you know what to teach? He said, we teach what the market wants. I said, Dean, you're in the same business I'm in, in manufacturing. You get good raw material, which is young men and women with good grade points and good credentials to be in your institution. You process them through your system, and then you sell them to the market. And if, and if you get good demand and prices for your product, you must be doing something right, okay? We need, we need to create leaders in our, and from, the very, from elementary school through education, because what we don't have in this world in any part of our society is leaders who have the skills and the courage to care for the people they have the privilege of leading. That is what we desperately need. And only when we change education to embrace their role in this issue will we address this issue and cure this cancer of people being manipulated for somebody else's gain. Fantastic, Bob. Thank you so much. How was it to be on the podcast? You sound like an amazingly gracious lady who I will get to meet someday because you know, I fly to Italy all the time under normal conditions. So what did you hear that, is, that resonates with you? Well, the most important thing for me is really, as, as, as also Simon was, was saying, it's so strong because it not only gives you hope, it gives you a 100% conviction that this is possible, right? Um, because we get to hear from so many companies all kinds of excuses, uh, uh, all kinds of you know, reasons why think thing cannot be this way, right? As the way you organize your own company. Um, and this is some kind of, you know, the most important proof in the pudding is that it does exist. So therefore it can be created. So that's, that's the number one uh, thing. And it means also that when you know you're in a situation where people care about you, there is no fear. And fear is the biggest enemy we have in this world. So that's the response to that. So this is a message of hope which we desperately need right now, okay? I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. In the time I have left on this earth, I hope to create disciples who will carry this message forward. Now, we've got 20 people in our, in our organization which are in the outreach, which are out helping companies join us in this journey to create a more caring world. And, uh, and they are extremely busy uh, uh, trying to meet the needs of people who say, Help me along this journey. And that's what we're trying to do. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for sharing. Uh, and to find out more, uh, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Bob. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, Bob. Ciao.